welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Divide et impera. It's a Latin phrase, divide et impera, which means to divide and conquer. By the way, Acts chapter 6 is where we are. I didn't tell you that part. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Divide et impera, divide and conquer, or divide and rule. Divide and conquer, divide or rule, has long been considered a military or political strategy. You understand the concept probably, I'm certain. Uh, Put simply, a divided people are a weak people. Without alliances, a community is weakened and positioned for takeover or collapse. When a people are divided, they're easily exploited. And so divide and conquer was a common, probably still is, a common military strategy, either through force or propaganda or some other means. If you can divide a people, you can more easily take them over and overrun them because they are not linked up. They are not striving together. They are not side by side. They are divided among themselves, so it makes all the little battles a lot easier to win. One thing we see in the book of Acts is the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We see the Spirit mentioned again in Acts chapter 6, as you heard a second ago. (coughs) But something else I believe we see in the book of Acts is the work of the enemy as well. Because we know the work of the enemy, he's cunning, isn't he? The enemy is cunning. The Bible says that he shoots these fiery arrows, these fiery darts, to see that he might find the weak links in our armor and shoot those fiery darts, and those fiery darts turn into a blaze and will overwhelm our lives. We've seen the enemy at work even in these first six chapters of the book of Acts. He, in this passage, is going to try to divide and conquer. But before that, we've seen other strategies that the enemy has tried. He's tried persecution. Almost immediately after the early disciples start preaching the gospel, we see that they are threatened with prison, they're threatened with death, and they're thrown in prison, they're, they're threatened with their very lives, and, and the evil one is, is threatening the church even through terror, to put fear in them that they might not follow the Lord. He's tried, we saw in Acts chapter 5, with, with hypocrisy, hypocrisy within. We see this wonderful man named Barnabas, who gives generously to the church, and then we see Ananias and Sapphira, who who lie to their brothers and sisters, who lie to the apostles, and and in doing so, lie to God. And so there's this hypocrisy that is that is brewing in the church. Uh, this facade is brewing in this church, and and the Lord wipes them out. And so the enemy is trying to infiltrate, if you will, the church through persecution, trying to silence them, trying to bring hypocrisy in their midst to try to get some division among them. And and now we see him at work again, trying to divide to see if he might not conquer the early church. He has not yet get it through his head that the church cannot and will not be silenced. The gates of hell cannot prevail even against the church because we serve a resurrected Christ, but he will try. If he can get the church divided, we know Jesus says this, a house divided cannot stand. So what's the problem? What's the problem that they are dealing with in in Acts chapter 6 as they are threatened with division? Let's go ahead and take a look. Before we talk about the problem, let's talk about the good. Acts chapter 6 verse 1, now in these days... 
when the disciples were increasing in number, this is Acts chapter 6, verse 1, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, now let's talk about the good things in those days. In those days, the gospel was growing. The word of God was increasing. The word of God was expanding. The word of God was going out. There were disciples increasing in number. There was church growth. There was gospel growth. Disciples were increasing in number in those days. So the church was expanding. The church was growing. There's, there's a problem, but we're not. There's good going on. Did you, did you notice something else about the good in this early church? Not only was this early church growing... But we also see that they were involved in in mercy ministry was taking place. And that's a wonderful thing. Do you notice what it says there? There is a daily distribution taking care of the needs of widows in their midst. This was what the people of God had long been called to do. To take care of strangers. To take care of the hurting. To take care of those who are suffering. To take care of those who have trouble taking care of themselves. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Particularly, you see a passage in Leviticus chapter 23 where the Lord says, when you, when you harvest a field, leave on the edges of the field some grain so that the poor and the sojourners and the strangers can take care of themselves and have something to eat. This is the job of the church. This is one of the jobs of the church, to take care of the hurting, to alleviate the pain of those living in a broken world. And so we see some good, don't we? The church is growing. The gospel is moving. Disciples are being added. We see some good. There's mercy ministry being done. Widows are being taken care of. There's a lot good going on. And perhaps you could see why the enemy would try to divide such a powerful movement. And he does. A complaint arose. Did you see it in verse 6? You might want to underline that word. A, a complaint arose by the Hellenist, arose against, by the Hellenist, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Uh, m- most literally, that word there for complaints means murmuring. A murmuring arose. You might remember that too from the Old Testament, right? Murmuring is kind of a big word. The people of God are in the wilderness. God is providing for them things like manna to eat. He's providing for them by things like water out of the rock. He's doing all of these wonderful things for the people. And they murmur. They complain about the Lord's provision, which led complaining about leadership so much so that Moses said, I wish I was dead rather than deal with these people. Murmuring can leave a church aimless, wandering, purposeless, and down right miserable the people of god are murmuring murmuring because of neglect so what's the problem why neglect the problem is that they are being neglected why are they being neglected Uh, certainly it probably rose out of some practical issues the church the bible says is growing at this time all sorts of people are being added to the number hellenists and hebrews People from every tribe, tongue, nation, and land, from all of these cultures, are being added to the number of disciples in that time. And with this great number and this great rise of of people joining this this movement, giving their lives to Christ and being saved, perhaps it was logistic, perhaps it was practical, perhaps no one was seeing to the organization of the daily distribution, probably. 
Maybe it was just a lack of resources. Like, like how do we manage all of that? How do we steward all these resources? How do we steward them well? Because in this daily distribution, you can imagine that would take a lot of time and, and managing. There's, we saw 5,000, probably 15, 20,000 people at this point that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, maybe even more than that in this early movement. They needed someone to help, to step up, to manage and steward the resources. Absolutely. The disciples were increasing in number. This was a good thing, which led to some problems, which led to some neglect, which led to some murmuring. So it was that. It was probably practical, logistical, but I think it was more than that. We see this cutting deeper because as Dr. Luke records this for us in his second volume, Luke, and then, then Acts, as, as Luke is recording this for us, he he, he makes it clear that it's not just widows that are being neglected. It, it is. But he mentions their ethnicity. Hellenists and Hebrews. And so the issue was cutting deeper that, that these Hellenists are saying we are being neglected in favor of the, of the Hebrew widows. Now, there could be another division there. Linguistic division. These Hellenists likely... Uh, spoke another language, a Greek, a Greek-speaking widows. Certainly that was there. But it's likely that what was cutting through this division cut across ethnic lines. Hellenists were Jews of the, uh, of, the, of the spreading out, the diaspora Jews. They had been spread out all over the region. And the Hebrews were, quote-unquote, true Israelites by way of culture. And so the former, the Hellenists, were raised outside of Israel, and they likely had noticeable social characteristics, maybe that weren't of any moral issue, but they had certain characteristics from the places that they came from, from all of these regions where they grew up, and different cultural practices and customs, and maybe dress and some stuff like that, that made them noticeably different. And then you had the, the Hebrew widows who probably looked and acted more like true Israelites. And so the Bible is honest. In this early church, it's a great model, but it's far from perfect. They had problems to deal with. And, and they had cultural barriers that needed to be leveled. Perhaps they weren't even aware of the neglect at the time. Perhaps they weren't even aware of what they were doing because it had been so ingrained in their minds that in their daily distribution, they kind of just naturally gravitated to those that were most like them, most looked like them and dressed like them and acted like them and didn't have these different social customs. Not morally evil, just they were just different. And so you see, the, the issue was more than just logistical, wasn't it? It was logistical and practical, but the problem, I believe, cut much deeper. It led to suspicion, leading to resentment, leading to accusations that we are being neglected in favor of the Hebrews. And so the Hellenists were murmuring, very much likely had a righteous complaint, and the we had become us and them. That will destroy a church very quickly. You all do this, we do this. 
That's us, that's them. When we divided, is divided between us and them, whether in perception or reality, it doesn't really matter at this point. What matter is, there is division brewing in the church across these cultural lines, across this daily distribution. Good things are now being manipulated, maybe not manipulated, but good things that they're doing. This mercy ministry has led to division, and these divisions are being felt. seems that one ethnic group is being favored over the other. This has the potential of being really ugly. Wouldn't you agree? This has the potential of being really ugly. This has the potential to completely sink a church, doesn't it? Wouldn't you imagine if something like that was arising in our midst? So, so what is the solution? Let's go ahead and take a look. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. I'll, say, I'll probably mention this again in a minute, but I'm going to note that. The full number of the disciples. They were congregational. They got together. Let's get together and figure this out together. We're all filled with the Spirit. We're all regenerate. If you're, if you're a disciple, you're, you're part of the body. Let's all get together. The full number of the disciples got together. The, I mean, so the 12 summer, the full number of disciples. Here's this, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out, brothers, pick out, so all the disciples help pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and then we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And then the Bible mentions the men that they chose. So what's the solution to this problem? The pressing need, does it, does it call for logistics? Yes. The first thing we see is the solution that is not right. The disciples make it very clear. Here's what the solution is not. Perhaps this had been suggested to the apostles. That here's what you need to apostles who are preaching and teaching and, and doing all these things. Like, f- figure this out. Go serve some tables. Go make this happen. Go, go step into that. And very likely, like Moses felt when he was overwhelmed with dealing with all the problems of the people and, and he appointed other men to, to help take care of the issues that he was dealing with to kind of ease the burden, perhaps in a similar way, this is what we will see here, is that it's not right. It's not right that we should give up preaching of the word to serve tables. And some of you might be thinking, okay, apostles, are, are, are you too good for it, Right? Like, are you too scared to get your hands dirty? Are you too scared to go low? Sometimes in ministry, you'll meet pastors like that who are prideful and above doing menial tasks. They're above cleaning of the toilets. They're above helping people. They're, they're above visiting people or whatever it might be. Certainly you see that in ministry. Is that what's going on here? The apostles saying, no, we're too good for this. We're not going low. Indeed, you can even find, or maybe they're lazy. <laughs> Do they feel too good? Are they, are they lazy? You find that in ministry. It's easy to be lazy in ministry. It's really easy to look like you're working hard at the right times and not really working hard. And that's certainly the case. Can be sometimes. But is that, that ca- is that the case here? Are they too prideful? Are, are, are they too lazy? No, I... I believe the apostles understand the assignments. 
Paul would go on to tell the Corinthian church, don't muzzle the ox while he's plowing, while he's teaching and, and preaching the word and devoting themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. I believe the apostles understood the assignments, that the solution is not to neglect the word and prayer. That They know with the growing church at this point, if they start doing that task, then what's going to be neglected is the ministry of the word and prayer. And what's expanding, as we'll see at the end of this, how is the increase coming? It says the word of God is bringing increase. And so they know if that they neglect the ministry of the word and prayer, it's not that they're too, too good or they're too lazy. It's that they just understand what the calling of God has, the calling of God that's been placed upon their lives and what will bear, bear fruit and gospel growth that they will, they would not make the strategic mistake of leaving their focus on the word to fix a pressing problem. Not saying they could never do that. But they know if there's to be effective gospel growth in the long term, then they need others to help bear this burden. So the major threat to the movement, what Luke is teaching here, is certainly division, particularly the threat of the ministry of the word being lost and neglected. If the apostles get tied up in this, that will be lost. So, so the enemy's coming with fiery darts, isn't he? He's attacking at multiple angles. So the solution they come up with, more or better stewarded resources, sure, but let's not put the cart before the horse. The solution, listen to this, you know, logistics, practical stuff, that'll, that'll come, but the real solution, people, people, for this congregation to look among them, see those who are, what does it say here? of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, and we will appoint to this duty. I know it's hard to make an argument from silence, but notice what it doesn't say. Get someone who's good with money. Get one someone who's good with, with, with tools. Get one who's good with logistics and all that's needed. But first, first, primarily, get Men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Now we'll see this play out. Let me just take a side note here. We'll see this play out later in the church as, uh, as the Lord lays two offices in the church with, with elders or pastors and, and deacons. I believe in seminal form here, we see the formation of the diaconate, those who will care for the practical needs of the church. So this solution will solve both problems. The widows will be cared for if you set these men aside. The widows will be cared for. That's what you call to do, to take care of the hurting. That will happen. That will continue. And the ministry of the word will not be neglected. Yes, these men would help in particular ways to meet particular needs, but they needed a particular kind of person. This was a call to a certain type of people. Good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Go ahead and, we're not to the end yet, but start thinking of application. You may be thinking, so what? And you probably see a lot of practical aspects of this, of how a church should function, and maybe you're starting to see the role of deacons and, and what they can do. But know this, who we are matters. Not just what we do, but who we are matters. Character matters. Being under the influence of the Spirit matters. Those things are vital to a church. 
not just the ability to accomplish things and to accomplish things with good logistics and, and good resources and things like that. That, that. that is helpful. But who we are matters. Let's take a look at some of those characteristics. So we see the problem, the solution is not this, not to neglect, but to set aside these men for this particular reason. And now the third point, who are these servants? What are their characteristics? They're of good reputation. They have a good reputation in the church body. They have a good reputation by people outside the church. In other words, they're not, uh, they're not hypocrites. They're, they're the same people you see in and outside the church. They probably serve in the church. They're involved in things in the church. They are, they, they are present. They're spirit-filled people. This is crucial for the people of God, right? They are people who are under the influence of the Spirit, not just really good at things. They are people who are living and directed and living by the Spirit, and, and they're wise. These guys are, are problem solvers. And these guys are also, don't miss this, unity preservers, right? This unity is brewing in this church, and, and because of their work, they will absorb the shock of what they are dealing with. They will help absorb this pothole. You ever hit a big pothole and it'll send you to a new dimension? Have you hit, hit that before? You've hit the, one of those before, right? They are hitting that pothole. And these deacons are here to say, we will not let this sink the ship or stop the car. We will help absorb this shock. We will come up with solutions filled with the Spirit. We will absorb this shock so that unity is preserved so that we will not be divided and conquered. That's what they are after. Paul would later identify qualifications for deacons. Listen to some of what, remember the seminal form of what deacons are. That these men must be dignified, honorable, respectable, and esteemed, not double-tongued, good reputation, those who are double-tongued say one thing to certain people, but say something else to others. They say one thing, but mean the other. They're two-faced and insincere. Not double-tongued if you're going to be a servant in the church. Not addicted to much wine. Not greedy for dishonest gain. So not in love for themselves. They're sound in faith and life. They must be full of the Spirit and hold. This is, by the way, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-12, through 12, if you're taking notes that they're sound in faith and life. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with clear conscience. They must be convicted and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. These aren't just handy men. These are folks who are firm in their beliefs and uphold those beliefs so that the apostles can devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer, not undo what's being done. They're blameless. They're a one-woman man, the husband of, of one wife. Their eyes are only for their wife. They manage their household well. If they either manage the household of God well, they must manage their own household well. doesn't mean your kids are perfect. Deacons are practical problem solvers. But even more than that, they are spirit-filled, wise servants. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not a deacon. <laughs> what does this mean for me? Well, this is for all believers. This is not, yeah, those are the ones you are to set aside. Ones who are exceptional servant leaders. 
ones who are exceptional in this, those you can look to and say, he looks like Jesus. When I'm with him, I have felt like I'm in the presence of Jesus. Those are the men you set aside. Those are the ones you set aside. But, but this is a call for all believers. They're, they're, they're ones who are emulating. They're ones who are showing of, of what it is to follow Christ, what it means to be a servant. Because ultimately, who these folks are called to reflect is the deacon of deacons, the servant of servants, Jesus. This doesn't mean the apostles aren't servants. This just means there are ones particularly set aside for particular tasks. As the apostle is set aside for the particular task of the ministry of the word and prayer. Who is reflected? Jesus. The one who emptied himself for the sake of you and I. It's Jesus, the one who, despite our unworthiness, went low and was willing to wash our feet so that we might be clean, so that we might be one with God in Christ Jesus. These are folks who, are you are with them, you feel like you have been with Jesus. This is hard. If you're a deacon in this church, this is your call. Do you smell like Jesus? Do people see Jesus when they're around you? They feel like they've been served like Christ. These folks are a gift to the church. Leading servants. There's a time in church history when likely anything would be done to quiet deacons. You may have been to some deacon meetings if you've been around here for any amount of time. That you would say amen to this. Deacons in some churches became the strong arms. The power players. The heavy hitters. Deacons were the ones who were thorns and sides. They were the potholes. <laughs> they were the ones who were allowed. They were the ones who weren't shock absorbers causing, I mean, uh, stopping disunity. They were the ones who were doing the disunifying. And if you've been in church for a long time, you could probably name at least one deacon who caused a church split or sowed a seed of discord or something like that. But in 1940... In the early part of the Second World War, when the Netherlands fell to Germany, there was another set of deacons. Many people in the Netherlands suddenly found themselves facing political oppression under the Nazi regime. To meet that crisis head-on, deacons in the Dutch Reformed Church bravely rose to care for those who were suffering the most. They provided food for the hungry and offered secret refuge to those in danger so that they might be kept safe. When the Nazi realized what was happening, they issued a decree in the Netherlands demanding that the office of deacon should be eliminated from the church. The Dutch believers responded, issuing this statement to the Nazis. Whoever interferes and touches the diaconate touches the task of the church. Whoever lays hands on the deacon lays hands on worship. The Nazis backed down in the dispute, and the deacons were allowed to continue their vital ministry. They wouldn't have stopped anyway. Deacons are ones who help us worship and see Christ because they show us Christ. What was the result of all this? Men were set aside. They set before the apostles. They laid hands, prayed on them, and guess what? 
because of their work, because of the word of the Lord that continued and was not neglected, the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests even, even the priests, the ones who were most adamant to silence these men at time, even them, as they see this church unified and serving one another and taking care of the hurting and the suffering, even the priests, as they heard the word of God, which was not neglected because of the vital work of these men, even the priests, even those in opposition, even the greatest, became obedient to the faith. God's word continued to multiply and grow. Church growth is facilitated by deacons, humble servants trying to make sure everyone is properly ministered to and that the world sees Christ. This is true of all of us. This is true of all of us. Yes, we set aside certain men who exemplify that clearly, hopefully, but this is true of all Christians. Because the Christ we serve is the servant of servants. The Christ we serve is one who will read this in a minute in John chapter 13 before we take the supper. Is one who looks at sinful disciples, removes his outer garments and kneels down and washes his disciples' dirty feet. And all the marks of discipleship Jesus could have highlighted in that moment as they celebrated the supper together in John 13. He highlighted a willingness to pick up a towel and get our hands dirty. Few things we do make the gospel more beautiful and compelling than when someone sees Christians with dirty towels and clean feet. Dirty towels and clean feet make the gospel clear. Everyday people doing everyday things to serve others. This is what humble service looks like. And this is what following Jesus looks like. What will unite a church and advance the kingdom? Christians who are like Jesus, who serve and seek to make Christ known. Let's go ahead and pray.